0: Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, you can't blame the Republicans for feeling a sense of urgency now that Queen Elizabeth is out of the way. Even the Australian Republican movement, which pretended to maintain a dignified silence when she died, couldn't help itself. Its expression of sadness and gratitude on the day also included the reminder that, quote, the Queen backed the right of Australians to become a fully independent nation during the referendum on an Australian republic in 1999, unquote. It was just that you stupid Australian voters didn't support it with her. The ARM also asserted, quote, It is unlikely we will ever see a monarch as respected or admired by the Australian people again, That might or might not be true, but even if it is, does that mean we must become a republic? Australia is in a very unique position. Like the United States, our country was founded at the tail end of the Enlightenment, when the ideas of freedom, equality, and individualism were becoming universal. Our laws, institutions, and culture were built upon these solid principles. And as a result, we are today a happy, prosperous, and widely envied nation. Unlike the United States, though, we never rose up against the empire. So we have, in my opinion, enjoyed the best of both worlds, an egalitarian culture that nevertheless retained and revered the virtues epitomized by the monarchy—humility, service, honor, humor, and hard work. The United States ditched most of those things and, through sheer patriotic energy and courage, became the world power of the 20th century. But look at it now. Some of its cities are like horror movies with drugged up zombies fighting and defecating in the streets, and the powerful elite are locked in a fight to the death for the Capitol and the White House. Americans say they don't do pageantry, but they kind of do. Just as the death of Queen Elizabeth is reminding ordinary Britons and members of the Commonwealth of what the monarchy represents, The U.S. also recently rallied around a significant funeral to remind themselves of what their republic represents. That funeral was for the violent thief and drug user George Floyd, whose death sparked riots across the nation, causing more deaths and billions of dollars of damage. The funeral was broadcast live on six television networks and featured a speech from future President Joe Biden. I grew up with Catholic social doctrine, which taught me that faith without works is dead, and you will know us by what we do. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got to deal with the denial of the promise of this nation to so many people
1: for so long. It's about who we are, what we believe, and maybe
0: most importantly, who we want to be. Who we want to be, Haven't they worked that out yet? The profound appeal of the monarchy is that it is a paradox. It's aristocratic, but it's accessible. It's powerful, but benign. Traditional, but modern. Formal, but in some way also relaxed. This can only exist in a system hundreds of years old. And here's an even bigger paradox. Replace the monarchy with a democratic republic and instead of a hereditary aristocratic born to serve, you can easily wind up with a demented geriatric crook who can't even read an cue like Joe Biden. Compare Biden's, uh, Biden's um, George Floyd speech, which was one of his more eloquent from the past few years, to this wonderful speech by Prince Charles to a, to a religious conference in 2006. The loss of tradition cuts to the very core of our being, since it conditions that which we can know and be.
2: For modernism, by its unrelenting emphasis on the quantitative uh, view of reality, limits and distorts the true nature of the real and our perception of it. Whilst it has enabled us to know much that has been of, of huge material benefit, it also prevents us from knowing that which I would like to refer to as the knowledge of the heart, that which enables us to be fully human.
0: When was the last time you heard Peter Fitzsimons or any prominent Republican talk like that? Instead, they tell us that the Republic is inevitable and to trust them that they've got the model right. Oh, and also they want to reshape the country. ARM spokesman Craig Foster said earlier this year, quote, We are resolved to create an Australia hostile not to each other, but to racism itself. And as a secular country, anti-discrimination regarding gender, sexuality, ability, color and race, trump our wonderfully diverse religious beliefs. We choose equality as our national faith, unquote. Uh, The nation was founded on equality, Craig. Do try to keep up, old son. As for those other woke talking points, I think there is more to a national ethos than worrying about each other's sexuality and skin colour. But now, a surprise. I wasn't always a monarchist. My generation discovered the fun of republicanism in 1977 when the Sex Pistols sensationally recorded their own subversive version of God Save the Queen, just in time for her silver jubilee. Like all good punk music, it parodied both pop culture and rebellion before quickly crashing and burning. We've all grown up since then. The leader of that movement, if there, uh, if there even was one, was the Sex Pistols singer, John Lydon who is older and wiser, but is still as opinionated and provocative today as he was as a petulant teenager. On the weekend, he posted this on his website. Rest in peace, Queen Elizabeth. Send her victorious. Well, can anyone in the Republican movement match that? Just as you can be a punk who loves the queen, So too, can you be a patriotic Australian who values the monarchy. God save the king. Well, the players in the women's AFL competition refused to have a minute's minute's silence before two of their games this weekend because it was indigenous round. What's the connection, you ask? Well, it's a bit tenuous. Belinda Duarte, a director of the Western Bulldogs AFL Club and a trustee of the MCG said honoring the Queen, quote, unearthed deep wounds, unquote. She elaborated, another quote, While for many Australians it's seen as appropriate to recognize the significance of the Queen's passing, we must understand that this brings up for First Peoples the impact of colonization and what the monarchy represents to us and our families, unquote. Well, whatever painful feelings are brought up by the impact of colonization, Duarte Duarte should remind herself of some of its benefits. These include giving women equal rights and status in society, property rights, democracy, individualism, access to Europe's history of art and culture, and a legal system that had evolved over hundreds of years. Duarte Duarte herself should be be daily reminded of that legal system. She's the CEO of a not-for-profit corporation called Culture Is Life which believes, quote, that all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people have the right to thrive and flourish, unquote. Indeed, they do. And our legal system, under which Culture is Life is Incorporated, enables Duarte to do, help them do exactly that. So what's her problem? But most of all, the impact of colonization includes opportunities to participate in and excel at sport, and even play it professionally. For Duarte to stand up at a football match and declare that colonization had wounded First Peoples when some of those people were about to play in a professional football match is hypocrisy on steroids. Australians have always adored their indigenous sports stars, from Lionel Rose and Yvonne Goolagong to Adam Goodes. One person who is sick to death of all this hypocrisy is Warren Mundeed, and I'm pleased to say he joins me now. Warren, welcome.
2: How are you going, Fred?
0: Good, good, Warren. Warren, now look, you grew up under some pretty tough conditions, as you explained in your autobiography a few years ago. How much harder was your childhood compared to the way most uh, vocal indigenous people grow up these days?
2: Well, it just goes to show you that a lot of, uh, indigenous people today have not learnt their history. You know, like I was born in, you know, 1956. I lived the first 13 years of my life under the, uh, New South Wales Aboriginal Protection Act and the average, Aboriginal uh, uh, Welfare Board. And they controlled our life from cradle to grave, you know, that. Uh, many of our people were on, on Aboriginal reserves. Uh, they could tell us what schools we could go to and what schools we couldn't. They, uh, you know, uh, up until the 1960s, uh, you know, they they had uh, curfews on us at night. Uh, you know, they. Uh, that we also had, um, you know, uh, salary restrictions. So, for instance, if a person sitting next to me doing the same job as me could get paid $100, I'd get paid $40. So, we had all these things as well as, uh, you know, police and everything else that were were sort of, you know, controlling our lives completely. Uh, You know, I just find it funny about some of the ignorance here, like, uh, you know, because since the 1970s, you know, all these laws have disappeared. You know, you can't point to any law today that is discriminatory against anyone.
0: No well, yes, before race, but Warren, mm. before we move move mm. on from your childhood, I just want to point out two things. Yeah. I mean, you grew up under considerable racism, and it was institutionalised. But that Australia has evolved since those bad, bad days, and whatever racism you endured. You were you were still able to see the goodness in Australia. I mean, you're a patriotic, as patriotic as the next bloke. I mean, <laughs> that how were you able to see the goodness in Australia when when overpaid modern sports stars can't?
2: Well, uh, that's that's one of the bizarre things because because you can imagine what my uh, parents went through and then my grandparents and great grandparents went through it during that period. What they taught us growing up was don't be a victim. Uh, take control of your life, take responsibility for what you can achieve in life, uh, you know, try and get as best education as you could and and get a job and provide money back into your family. Even if you got less pay than the, the, the worker next to you, you still worked and you still worked hard. And, and I grew up, uh, you know, with uncles and aunties and and, and grandparents and um, parents and that, who worked really hard. You know, they worked in a, in a cattle cattle stations because I where I lived in the North of New South Wales with a large cattle areas and that. And, they, and you can imagine people around 1900 into the early 50s that worked pretty hard, no matter what, black, white, or brindle, on cattle stations. And they and and they did, and they worked very hard. And they but they also took pride in what they were doing. Uh, I've seen photos of my uh, father, you know, and he's—they he, slept in humpies, uh, my grandparents and parents that. and that—and and yet they, they'd get up and they'd have a suit on to go to church. And it was pressed. I don't know how they did it, actually. You had them pressed and clean and shoes. And, and my dad being a bit of a dapper bloke, as you can tell, looking at me, that I've, I've, I've you know, looked like him as well. <laughs> He's, he had his hat on and everything, and he looked, he looked fantastic. And they were always polite. They always worked hard. And, and, and they took up challenges. You know, like my mother, uh, her grandfather was Irish, and he married an Aboriginal woman back in the 1860s. And he and um, and she wanted us to be uh, have access to education. So our, our education was through the Catholic school system. And uh, and she, and I remember when the, uh, they didn't have a high school in our area. My parents uh, rallied a number of other people and talked the local uh, uh, Catholic girls' high school into accepting boys, uh, much to the pleasure of my older brothers. But it, it was. Uh, You know, this is the type of people they were. They and 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 I I I really you know get so much pride in me because every now and again you know, like I go home to Grafton and up through that Ugal Clarence River area, and people old people come out and say, said, oh, you we heard that you're Roy and and Dolly Mundine's son, and I said, yeah, that's that's right. And they talk about how wonderful they were, and how hard working and, and and stuff, and so so by they believe that you you. Just determined your life, no matter what. And I remember some of the funny stories, like the welfare officer come around to check our house out. My my mum got the broom and chased him, and uh, and he never came back. (laughs) So so, so it's about that strength, even though we were living in a segregated. uh, Well,
0: well, speaking of that uh,
2: strength, systematic. Mm -mm.
0: Yeah, well, speaking of that strength, strength, that contrasts a lot with these professional sports sports stars. I mean, sport, th- these people are playing a tough footy game. Isn't sport meant to make you tougher and more resilient?
2: <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I couldn't understand. They're playing one of the toughest games in the world, you know, Australian football. And, uh, and here they are, they get triggered by, uh, you know, you mentioned the word queen and you mentioned the word colonisation and, and they fall down in a heap and they're laying in a fetal position, you know. I just find that really strange because... The people today, they they hadn't experienced any of those laws. Uh, they got they have a very good education system. When I was a young bloke, I remember Charles Perkins, I was six at the time. Charles Perkins and John Moriarty come to our town, and they were two Aboriginal people. They're probably the uh, who went to university. In fact, they're well known as being the first small group of people who went to university. And uh, we were all young kids, and we're sitting there going, "Oh, gee, this university must be really." special, you know, this place, because the, our parents were whispering about oh, the university. You know, didn't have a bloody clue what university was, but it must have been a great place because it sort of sacred place because the way my parents spoke about it. And I'll never forget when they turned up because, you know, typically in the 60s, you know, they had that that, that nice suit on, a white shirt, a black tie and, and their shoes, I never forgot their shoes. I looked at their shoes and thought. Oh my God! They're just the most cleanest, blackest shoes I've ever seen, and 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 uh, and I and I, I thought, geez, uh, oh, I thought, well, I'm going to get university. I just have to get these clean black shoes. So I used to polish my shoes every day, <laughs> just to, to be the, <laughs> well, to, to break out of that area. You were
0: you were <laughs> imbued with a sense of wonder about the world, and that's what life's about, Warren. But you know, if the it's AFL, true. if the AFLW doesn't want to hold a minute's silence for Queen Elizabeth. Perhaps it could hold a minute's silence for Elena Kukla and her two-month-old son Orlando. You might remember, Warren. Uh, um, These were the people murdered by Kukla's partner in Alice Springs in July. They were mentioned by uh, Jacinta Nampajimpa Price in her maiden speech in July. Um, Price was trying to highlight the desperately tragic conditions that women and children endure in remote communities. But instead, we get all this grandstanding about the queen Warren, why are urban Indigenous agitators so blind about what the real problem is?
2: I just find it really hard. Because, you know, you look at people who are living in Sydney, living in Melbourne and Perth, and that, these large southern cities, and they seem to, to... to, There's a fog between that cities and and the north of Australia where these in remote and regional communities you've got these incredible uh, crime statistics you know it's, it's, they look at the statistics and they think that it's all a bunch of white fellas going up there and beating us up In actual fact is it is dysfunction within those communities you know like the, you know like the prime minister saying oh we should you know people should be able to spend their money their own way they live in a fantasy world it's like uh, when uh, when the premier of queensland the former premier of queensland said i like to have a beer on my on my uh, a veranda before i go when i go home from work and then i like to have a you know decided on what type of red wine i like to have with before dinner and I sit there go, what, are you complete idiots? That's not the world that these people live in, you know. It's, it's not the world that even the people in the western suburbs of Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne don't live in. And, and, and I sit, this is like they're all, I can imagine all these people coming home from the bush after wrestling with cattle all day and they just say, oh, I think I might have a beer on the veranda and then I'll check out the wine cabinet and see what's in the wine." No, these communities are massively unemployed. Uh, they're living in, in government Housing uh, and, fall, and and half of them was falling down. They have huge fences around them, uh, about two metres high, barbed wire fences, and that's not for the aesthetics. That's to keep people out. I've been in some of these communities where they actually lock us in in, in the accommodation for the night because of the threat of violence that, that happens in these communities, and so, and, that, and it's all fueled by alcohol and and drugs. And you and I, I just don't get it how stupid and how blinded some of these uh political leaders are
0: and and yet you know all they can worry about is whether or not they have to give a minute silence to the queen but speaking of the queen warren what did she mean to you and what does the monarchy mean to you
2: oh that's interesting because i you know as i've i've said in in, in a lot of times that i'm actually a republican i like to see a, a elected uh a president of a, a australian citizen and that but at the same time, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm, i am think Joe Hildebrand called it, I'm a lazy Republican because I don't want to get up and fight for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like to have it, but I don't want
2: to fight for it. But yeah, it's, um, but a lot of Aboriginal, in fact, quite a lot of Aboriginals are actually monarchists. You only have to look at uh, Senate, the former Senator Neville Bonner, and this is the other thing I get about the, I can't get about the AFL. Uh, back in the 1930s, Sir Doug Nichols uh, he played football for, for uh, Fitzroy and he was the first Aboriginal to play for the Big V, uh, uh, Victoria, and uh, and he was a, a monarchist well. He ended up being governor of, uh, of South Australia in the nine, late 1970s, and that. you know. So what? They, what do they say? What are these? Who are these Aboriginal people who actually get triggered by the Queen? And and you know, the Queen to me was the only monarch I knew up until you know King Charles the Third last week. Uh, was an amazing person who served this country uh, well and and served the you know the British Commonwealth. And also they talk about her as the Queen represents colonisation. This is another thing they don't understand about history. She came on the throne in 1952. It was the end of the British Empire. It was the end of colonisation, and it was and so uh, she was there. Uh, spent most of her time travelling around Africa and the world. Uh, d- lowering the British flag and rising, raising the flag of independent countries. So she became become the queen of decolonisation. So I wish people would actually uh, learn that history and, uh, and, and, and get the facts right.
0: Indeed, indeed. And just quickly before you yeah. we go, we've only got 30 seconds left, but uh, sad news this week. Uncle Jack Charles uh, died this week, the renowned Indigenous actor like you, came from very difficult circumstances. What legacy does he leave, Warren?
2: Uh, look, he's he's the he's the example that we should be looking at. He came from very very uh, difficult uh, circumstances, a really tough life, and yet he was able to achieve and get over that and become one of Australia's most loved and and, and revered uh, actors. And he and he was it, I, I never heard a bad word about him. And yet, when you look at his life, you know if you ha- if you saw a person who had an excuse to do nothing and, and just to get in trouble with the law and then go to jail for the rest of his life. He was that person, but he he got over it, he moved forward and he learned. And it was funny when you look listen to his story, it was actually a white person who challenged him about that life. And that was the thing that stirred him on to be that successful and most loved person.
0: Yeah, he was dearly loved. Good on you Warren, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's the straight-talking former Labor Party president and former Liberal Party candidate, Warren Mundine. Now, if you think that being overweight is caused by diet, then you are probably a racist conservative with no understanding of the nuances of history. A video went up on TikTok this week explaining that obesity in modern India is caused not by the food some Indians eat, but by the Dutch East India Company visiting the country 400 years ago. It goes like this. I'm going to prove to you why white people are the reason I'm fat today. If white people didn't go looking for spices, then various sea routes to... Indian subcontinent and Africa and other places of the world would not get discovered and if they didn't get discovered then East India Company would never come to Indian subcontinent and if they didn't come then the fertility of the land would not get destroyed because they forced us to cultivate tobacco and dyes and opioid things like that and that destroyed the fertility of my country. Well, the history lesson continued. Western intervention caused famines, which led to a switch in India to grain-based foods, which led to the woman in the video being, quote, biologically programmed to hold onto more fat, unquote. The only thing she didn't blame is climate change, but maybe she was saving that for her next post, explaining why extreme weather events were constantly delaying her Uber Eats deliveries from McDonald's. Is it racist to say that she should stop blaming white people for her problems and start dealing with life's challenges like her ancestors did when the evil white people ruined their land and forced them to eat grains? The sad truth is that this woman might have adopted to a lazy Western diet, but she is not also sharing the prosperity that normally comes with it. Well, not as much as she could anyway. India's GDP per head of population in real terms has almost tripled since 1996, and its share of the world economy is expected to almost match the United States by 2030. By then, this young woman, who I'm guessing will still be in her early 30s, will either still be posting videos to TikTok from the hospital where she's being treated for diabetes or will have become a nasty, fat-shaming conservative like you and me, and be simply enjoying life instead. Well, you won't want to miss Nick Cater's battleground here on ADH-TV at eight o'clock tomorrow night. Nick will show his interview with the great Jay Bhattacharya of the Stanford Medical School, and one of the most respected epidemiologists in the world, Professor Bhattacharya was one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which urged the governments of the world to not lock people down during the COVID pandemic. The interview was pre-recorded this afternoon, so Nick can give us a sample of the astonishing revelations the professor makes about people like US National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Director Anthony Fauci. Some of them are rather frightening and had direct impact on us here in Australia. But first, Nick also has access to some survey results that will blow the Australian Republican movement out of the water. Let's get him in to talk about them. Nick, welcome.
1: Thanks, Fred. Pleased to be with you again.
0: Now, Roy Morgan did a poll this week which found that 60% of Australians want to keep the monarchy Now you've got access to Compass uh, uh, survey results, which um, uh, addressed the same topic. What were the questions and what did they find?
1: Well, the interesting thing about the Compass polling is it's the same question they asked back in January. So in January, you get a result that says basically 56% of people favour Republic and 44% want to stick with what we've got, the monarchy. Now that's been reversed. So it's It's pretty much in line with the the Roy Morgan findings. Uh, uh, We are now 57% in favour of the status quo, in favour of the monarchy. So this is, of course, an enormous blow to people like Peter Fitzsimons, you know, the red bandannad one of the Australian Republican movement and others who who just thought foolishly. And I think this is a very patronising view they had was that the only reason people could possibly be content with the monarchy was, you know, there's some sort of sentimental attachment to the dear old Queen. And once she was gone, it was game on. And that's what he said. But it's been quite the opposite. I, I felt it would be. I just felt the way... You know, Prince Charles became King Charles almost overnight with just zero ripples, and you just immediately saw how he grew once he was in that that office, that very esteemed and very responsible job, it just seemed to me that people were not going to go for a republic, and and it, that's exactly what's happened. In fact, they've gone completely the other way. So, the death of the Queen, far from boosting their hopes of this grand inheritance, they're waiting for right. Uh, yeah, they're not going to get it.
0: Well, one of the things about the ARM is they claim to understand Australia. They claim to, you know have their finger on the pulse of the nation. How could they have got this so wrong?
1: I don't know, Fred. They've been getting it wrong for so long, <laughs> haven't they? I yeah. do you remember that point. I think it was when Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister and suddenly it seemed that the Prime Minister of, of, the Aust- of Australia, every Premier in the country, were all in favour of the Republican cause and Peter Fitzsimons lined them all up saying, game over but of course that's not the way the Australian people saw it and it's not the way they see it now. And I think the the mistake they made in 1999 was to take the Australian people for granted and assume very patronisingly that the only reason they cling to the monarchy is out of some old-fashioned sort of colonial attachment. It's not that at all, it seems to me. It seems most people support the current system because, wait for it, it actually works. I mean, we have very stable... Democracy, power changes hands peacefully, by and large.
0: Well, let's let's get to the change of the the, the transition of power in a minute. But just 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 sticking on the ARM for a second, because on the day that Queen Elizabeth died, they put up a message on their website reminding us that the Queen supported the referendum in 1999. The implication is it was just the stupid Australians who voted against it. <laughs> I mean, can you sense that the ARMs, the, the, this, the irritation being felt in the ARMs office these uh, days?
1: You know, it, it, if they would, it, you know, they obviously want to get rid of the monarchy, but they, they'd quite willingly get rid of the entire Australian population, replace <laughs> them with a new one if they could, you know. Honestly, I think what you've got there, you've seen it over the years, Fred, that they are basically a hardcore of disgruntled baby boomers who've never been able to get over the dismissal of Gough Whitlam. Even though, as we now know, everything's on the record, everything's out there, it was nothing at all to do with the Queen. It was the Governor General's decision in Australia, and uh, despite the ripples it created, it, I think it was a justifiable decision, given the absolute mayhem that was the Whitlam government and the chaos they were creating with our budget.
0: Exactly, and and in defence of our system, one constitutional crisis in a century is not a bad not a bad strike rate, really.
1: No, and guess what happened? Right? There was an election, you know, a, a couple of months after the dismissal and the and the public overwhelmingly backed the dismissal by voting in Fraser and 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 we had a peaceful election 3 years later etc it was no big deal it was obviously a big deal if you were uh, you know wide-eyed young labor uh, enthusiast in those days now a baby boomer in the you know in the later years still looking back nostalgically <laughs> on that era Okay, big deal for them, you can understand it. But for the rest of the country, no, including new Australians, Australians who have been born since, for them, the system works. And, uh, you know, when you look at the United States, why would you want a president? So that's the way most people feel. And I think that they've never come to terms with that. Interestingly enough, Albanese seems to be stuck in that groove too.
0: Yeah, he's, he's stuck between a rock and a hard place, isn't he? The, but you came here after, you arrived in Australia after 75, you, uh, you're a, you know, a, a dual citizen. What's your. Uh, are you surprised or delighted about the depth of feeling for the monarchy in Australia?
1: Oh, let me put one thing on the record. I'm now a unique citizen of Australia. Oh, oh I actually, my apologies. I went, I, why I did went, I
0: just call you a bomb? Did I, I accidentally?
1: I, I actually went to some trouble to <laughs> rid myself of British citizenship, not because I don't love the UK, but because I just felt you have to pledge your allegiance to one country, and this is a country that's given me so much and welcomed me in. But look, enough of that schmaltzy stuff. The interesting thing is, Fred, when I was in the UK, I really was not a great fan of the royals at all, particularly during that period, you know, the 80s, the 90s, when, you know, it was really just a soap opera, and there were all these sort of really disappointing young princes and princesses behaving, you you know, like idiots. So... I was not. A, I didn't appreciate it because in Britain, you know, it's just there. It's always been there. It was only when I came to Australia, and uh, in 1991, when I actually became a citizen and I had to swear allegiance to Her Majesty, her heirs and successors, and I really started to think about this. Why does Australia cling to what I thought was an old system? And then I realised, eventually, you know, I learnt the beauty of the system. You've got a, a, a head of government who is a head of the nation who is apolitical completely is not interested in one side of politics or the other simply acts there as a, a sort of rock of stability and calls makes the hard decisions about who should be in parliament when when necessary like the line judge right i mean yeah. put it crudely it works fred and not well, only that we've had a you know of course remarkable role model in in Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and we miss her dearly. Indeed.
0: Just let me quote from your column on Monday, which was a magnificent column, I've got to say. So Nick's a a regular a Monday columnist every Monday in The Australian. And you said, quote, the crown transcends human frailties and earthly morality. Some might be so bold as to regard it as a gift from God, unquote. Beautifully put, Nick.
1: Mm, Well, I realised that for the first time. I mean, obviously, people talk about this. I mean, I I go to church. I remember the Anglican church. So, you know, we we talk about this all the time. But it never really struck me why that is. The the thing is, Fred, you and I, like, we can get to choose our government, our our prime minister. That's what we do under our system. But it's above our pay grade to choose the head of state. There's something rather magic, magic, very special about that, I think. It's out of our hands. So it, we just... It is. Well, it's
0: also out of, Nick, it's also out of the hands of Republicans. Yeah. They never talk about metaphysics or, or things that transcend. They just talk about very mundane sort of legal technicalities. And that's not what nations are built on, are they?
1: Well, no. I mean, we could go on. We could get quite deep on this. What's the other explanation for why we've suddenly got a change of monarch at this time? Chance? Well, you could perhaps think so, but I, I rather like the idea. It's sort of ordained. But you're right. I mean, the thing is, if we were to decide, like you and I got a hand in deciding it, obviously we'd be outvoted by the by the woke left on the North Shore of Sydney, and we'd end up with some ghastly president, which we don't. Neither of us want. So much better that it should be, you know, just just something that is not out of our hands. Actually, has no role in decision making other than just approving what is recommended to it by Parliament is just there to keep politicians in their place, it seems to me, prevent them getting more power, which none of us want.
0: Well, speaking of more power, let's talk about Professor Jay Bhattacharya, one Mm. of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. Firstly, he's had quite a rough ride in the media over the past couple of years. So I'm I'm guessing he's a fairly guarded person. What's he like to interview, Nick?
1: Well, he's terrific. And the, the funny thing is, Fred, the first time I've had a chance to talk to him, One on one, but I feel that I've been in on a conversation that he's been involved in for the last two years, just simply for this wonderful world of podcasts and blogs and everything. You know, I've been following what he's been saying from the beginning because it always seemed like common sense, right? His basic point is this don't lock down the entire population. What's the point? Like most people, by the vast majority of people in Australia, very low, if zero, risk of dying from COVID under normal circumstances. But of course, there's people, uh, largely the elderly, uh, the people with comorbidities, overweight people, for instance, smokers, for instance, but other things like people with cancer. They are vulnerable. So you look after them, right? It, it's just always from day one seemed to be common sense. And I wrote about this at the time and got sort of blank stares, you know, but that's all he argued. That's what the Great Barrington Declaration was, you know, let's not do, lock down everybody. Let's just lock down those who are in, at risk and the rest of us get on with our lives. And uh, the result of that, and this was a declaration which was signed not just by Dr. Bhattachary, but two other really prominent uh, immunologists, people who know what they're talking about, was that they came under the sustained attack from Anthony Fauci and the American government. And we're now seeing through emails that have been released through Freedom of Information and others which may be released by the end of this month, actually under a court order because they're taking court action against Fauci and others, that show this was collusion, that Fauci and others actually conspired to attack these people's reputation and bring them down and involve social media in that. So they had direct communication with social media bosses. We need to bring these people down because they're dangerous. Dangerous? All they were doing in October 2020 was just arguing, well, look, there's another way to do this, fellas. You know, you don't have to lock the entire population down. So. You know, I think he, he is been vindicated by what's happened since. I mean, it's widely appreciated now that lockdowns did very little benefit, if anything, and actually caused a lot of pain and, and misery and indeed death and illness through that process. So that was a bad strategy. It should never, ever happen again, in my opinion. All he did was highlight that at the time. Lots of people, as I said to him, lots of people are wise after the event. You are wise in the event and you suffered for it.
0: Well, the COVID narrative is really falling apart now. When do you think there'll be political fallout over all this?
1: Well, that's a very interesting question. I, 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 there's no appetite, is there, at the political level, even to debate this? And I sort of get that. Like, you know, it was a horrible period. We are where we are. Let's move on. But at some point, we have to actually face these issues. Why did we move into this heavy, Chinese-style lock-everybody-down policy so quickly and why didn't we get out of it? What were the mistakes that were made? And and because from lockdowns follows everything else. It follows the fact you've got to compensate people for losing their jobs temporarily, for businesses put out of business. That's where the big dollars go, Fred. That's why you and I we'll be paying this off for the rest of our lives and then our children will be paying it off after that. And Indeed. it was the lockdown policy, which was at the root of that. Indeed. At some point we've got yep. to say, was this the best way to do it?
0: Well, I'd, I'd argue we, it was always known that it wasn't and we need more than a Royal Commission. In in some instances, I think we need criminal trials. <laughs> but just quickly before you go, Nick, um, your good friend and mine, Tony Abbott, didn't get an invitation to the Queen's funeral from Anthony Albanese. Uh, Albo did take 10 other ordinary Australians, who uh, who I'm sure are very excited and uh, worthy uh, guests. But Tony is one of the staunchest monarchists in Australia. Don't you think it's a bit ungenerous of Albo not to uh, take Tony along?
1: Well, this is not going to stand up for Albo because I have some inside information on this, Fred. In the end, it, it was the Queen's decision. She said she didn't want the place packed with VIPs. She wanted ordinary people and, and gave firm instruction that would be the case. Uh, I don't want to give secrets away, but, but Anthony Albanese uh, behaved towards Tony Abbott with utmost decency and respect. And I believe, Tony, you can ring him and speak for himself. I think he understands why this is. I understand why it is. He would have loved to have been there, of course. I would have been. loved to have been one of the 10 Australians chosen. It wasn't to be. But I think we've got to see those 10 who were chosen as representatives of all. And it was, in the end, it was Her Majesty's decision and we respect that.
0: Oh, she's noble even after death. Nick Cater, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, for it. That's Nick Cater, whose show here on ADH-TV at 8 o'clock tomorrow night will be unmissable. Well, before I go, Channel 9 has announced that it will shoot an unauthorized two-part dramatization of Shane Warne's life. His daughter Brooke responded by doing what the children of celebrities often do in these situations, She posted an angry message on social media, and she had a point, quote, do any of you have any respect for dad or his family? She added that Warren had done a lot for Nine himself, and yet a mere six months after he died, they are planning to, well, what are they planning to do? If it's an unauthorized telemovie, it will hardly be a rerun of the highlights of Warren's life that were played at his state funeral. By the way, Warren's state funeral was a reminder that politicians are too quick to extend this honor to folk heroes. Warren was no saint, as we all know. The speed with which Victorian Premier Dan Andrews announced the state funeral in March was a little conspicuous. It signified to me, at least, that Andrews wanted to be seen as a man of the people, but this is a man who won't dare walk the streets himself for fear of what an ordinary punter might say to him. But back to Warney, Channel 9 obviously knows a warts and all telemovie will be ratings gold. We know the trouble Warn got up to with women and various other hedonistic pursuits, which is why we loved him so much and can't get enough of him. That the telemovie is unlikely to uncover anything we don't already know is unlikely to affect its ratings. I'm with Brooke Warne on this one. Warney lived an exciting life and we were all witnesses to it. Let the bloke rest in peace. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for your company this week. Don't forget to tune in to Nick Cater's Battleground at 8pm tomorrow night, followed by a special edition of David Flint's Save the Nation, in which David, Alan Jones and myself discuss Queen Elizabeth's enormous life and legacy. David and Alan both met Queen Elizabeth, so they have some good stories to tell. And I'll be back here again on Monday at 9 o'clock. Good night.